0: Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Somehow. come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Back, you tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried, How do they come day, back, mother? Didn't you? What's you the died? secret? Lodges by Joan Aiken Are you sure, doctor? Said Rose Burdock.
1: You really mean that he's got mumps and, and she's got measles? You couldn't be mistaken. No mistake, said Dr. Cobb briskly. Seen too many cases this week. Half the town's got one or the other. Bob's got the stiff neck. Titch has the spots. Nothing you can do but keep them warm. Give them aspirin and lots to drink. Wrap up their necks and ears and keep them isolated because what's sure to happen is that in a couple of weeks they'll swap bugs. It's then you really have to worry because they'll be a bit pulled down by the first bug so they may take the next one harder. How long will it last? She said, faintly. He was scribbling prescriptions. mm, uh, uh, Oh, you'll probably have them both at home for about a month from first to last. Here, uh, this is for Titch. Every four hours, around the clock, and these are for Bob, same, till their temperatures are back to normal. Call me if the fever goes on for more than two days, or if there is any delirium. Delirium? Not likely, unless Mump's meningitis sets in. Watch out for bronchitis or pneumonia, though, of course. Have you had mumps and measles, by the way? Oh, yes. Well, you can get mumps again, so look out, he said with callous cheer, running down the front steps. Rose dully watched him go. There was a small disused graveyard beside her house. A heavy rain, followed by a sharp January frost, had left all the gravestones neatly cased in ice. They looked like playing cards laid out. Or patience. Patience. How peaceful, she thought, to be lying stretched out in one's bones under there with an ice pack overhead, and went back into the house where Titch, hot and miserable, wanted a drink and to be rubbed with eau de cologne. Bob, feverish and with acutely painful glands, wanted a hot poultice round his neck to take away the pain. Both asked to be read aloud to, and both wished to be made instantly better. Rose presently dragged herself wearily downstairs for the next disagreeable duty. Uh, A woman's scene. Can I speak to Mrs. Joubert, please? Uh, Mrs. Joubert, this is Rose Burdock. Mrs. Joubert, I am most terribly sorry, but it looks as if I shan't be able to get into the office on Monday. Both my children are sick, one with mumps, the other with measles, and my lodger left two days ago. I've got no one at home to look after them. Y- yes, of course I will. But yes, I, I know. Yes, I, I do realise that. Yes, I-, I know Wednesday is press day. Uh, I- I'll certainly see what I can do. I just thought I'd better warn you in case. Uh, yes, yes, I will. Yes, of course. You do remember, Mrs. Burdock, came the editor's clear voice over the wire, that when we gave you this job, it was on the strict understanding that there were to be no extra days off, no emergencies or crises, that if you came to us you promised never to leave us in a lurch on press days. Rose remembered the conversation extremely well. Mrs. Joubert, who had a face like an isosceles triangle on its apex, with a crest of blue hair and two zero signs for eyes, had terrified her so much that she had made the promise unhesitatingly with every intention of keeping it. Besides, With a well-disposed lodger who was always at home at tea time before the children had finished school, the future seemed secure. Who could have foretold that the lodger would be summoned to Scotland to nurse a dying mother, or that the children would succumb to mumps and measles simultaneously? I'll do my very best, Mrs. Joubert, she said in despair. Please do, dear, because this sort of thing really mustn't happen, you know. We've been very good to you, made special arrangements for you to work a four-day week. Yes, I know. Very well, then. After the formidable click with which Mrs. Joubert rang off came the immediate peal of the front door. Oh, God, now what? Rose thought, and dragged herself to the door. If that's the meter, it means another electricity bill. It was not the meter man, but a frail-looking woman with badly waved hair dangling on either side of her face like a cocker spaniel's ears. Her face was somehow ineffectual, pale and long, with anxious grey eyes and a mouth that made efforts to be firm, but kept dropping back into a weakly placating curve. Her skin was dry and chalky, and her clothes hung on her like dead leaves after the first rains of winter. Mrs. Burdock? Her voice was placating too, refined yet shallow, as if she never took in quite enough breath, You won't know me, but I've heard of you through your professional associates. Well, through Mrs. Joubert, actually. If it's life insurance, I'm afraid I'm not interested, said Rose swiftly. And you must excuse me, but I've got two sick children in the house. I have to get back to them. No, no, you misunderstand me. I'm giving Mrs. Joubert as a reference. Actually, she's a friend of my husband's father, Admiral Colgate at South Dean. Oh, I see. In fact, Rose saw nothing. It was true that Mrs. Hubert had a weekend cottage at the village of South Dean five miles away, and no doubt she knew dozens of admirals there. But why should that bring this dithering woman to stand on her threshold? The fact is, uh, we're a bit desperate, my husband and I, Mrs. Colgate went on rapidly, with what she seemed to hope was a winning smile. And we happened to hear, through the local grapevine, you know, that you might have some rooms to let in your house. We wondered if there might be a chance for us to rent them. You want to rent rooms? Suddenly, the sunlight on the graveyard's frosted grass seemed to have acquired the heat of midsummer. Mrs. Colgate's chalky face was haloed in a golden fuzz of hair. Oh, oh, now I do see. Uh, please come in and look at them, won't you? I'm afraid they're nothing very grand, just two rooms, a bathroom and kitchenette. Uh, Won't you come upstairs? We don't want anything grand, pattered Mrs Colgate in a soft, conciliating voice, following up the stairs. She had to duck her skimpy length to get in at the spare bedroom door, for the house was Tudor, with lintels to match, and she quite tall. Nonetheless, she instantly exclaimed, Oh, how delightful! Why this would suit us down to the ground? It's really an answer to a prayer, you see. As my husband has been disqualified for driving for six months uh, just on a technicality, you know, so silly, and he has to catch the eight fifteen twice a week to town, and there's no bus to South Dean, and I'm a wretched driver in a fog, and, and you know how many fogs we've been having these mornings. We have been living at South Dean with the Admiral, you see, my husband's father. Ever since we had to come back from Iran so uh, suddenly, Desmond had an excellent job in Tehran. It was so sad when things got difficult there. All this flowed out in a gentle, unaccented stream as she, rather inattentively it seemed to Rose, inspected the bathroom, kitchenette, and two bed sitting rooms. Quite perfect. And is there a shed or something where we can garage the car? That, Rose was obliged to confess. There was not. Her own Mini lived across the lane where there was a slot just big enough for one car. But I'm afraid they won't allow any more. You can park overnight in the main square, though. That's only three minutes' walk. Mrs. Colgate declared that that would be absolutely super. And that the whole thing was just what they'd been looking for. Only three minutes to the bus, too. Couldn't be more convenient. Uh, May we move in this afternoon? "'Don't you want your husband to come and look first? said Rose, a little startled. "'Oh, no need. Uh, no need at all. He'll love it just as much as I do.' "'There's just one thing,' Rose hesitated, feeling that, heaven sent, though this chance seemed, it behoved her, to be honest. "'I have two children, aged six and eight. "'Oh, the pets! We love children!' cried Mrs. Colgate. "'I've had children of my own, you see, grown now, alas!' We shall be so happy to live in a house with children once more. Oh, that's, uh, I'm very sorry. Um, But the thing is, went on Rose desperately, that one of my children has mumps at present, and the other has measles. And in about ten days' time, or, or even sooner, they are due to reverse the pattern. Are you sure you want to face that? Have you had mumps or measles yourself, Mrs Colgate? Bless you, yes, my dear, long ago, and so has my husband. Mumps and measles are nothing to us. We shall be happy to nurse your children for you. It will make us feel needed. I gather you go up to town every day. I feel quite certain that we're going to fit into your house very well. That's all settled then, and we'll move in this afternoon between three and four, if that's a good time. Um, y- yes, of course, Rose said. I- I'll give you some keys. Mrs. Colgate's smile had been so continuous and persevering that it was rather a shock for Rose to observe the violent shaking of her hands as she received the keys. Poor thing. Perhaps she had arthritis, or Parkinson's disease, was it, that made a shake, or somebody's palsy? Who was that at the door? called the children's voices from their separate bedrooms. It was no use putting them in together. First, they argued. Then, they quarrelled, finally they fought. Rose went to tell them that the two new lodgers were due to arrive, who would be happy to read aloud, fetch drinks and do shopping errands. Bob took the news indifferently. He had a temperature of 102. Titch's face fell. I thought you'd stay at Home and look after us, she said dolefully. Honey, you know I'd like to, but I can't. I have to go to my office. But I'm sure Mr. and Mrs. Colgate will be very nice. At 2.30, the bell rang again. And it was a short, very fat man with a green eye-shade over his face who had an immense untidy bundle wrapped in a red-baize cloth. Mrs. Burdock, I'm Desmond Colgate. Delighted to meet you. Can't shake hands. (laughs) May I carry this little lot upstairs? His voice was startlingly high and shrill. The only thing higher, Rose thought, would be a bat's squeak. What she could see of his face below the green shade was almost as startlingly white and moist, like the underside of a place. Taking her silence for a scent, he nipped past her, and locating the stairs by instinct, it seemed, went quickly up with his load. Finding her wits, Rose followed and directed him into the lodger's rooms. Delightful, delightful, he said, dumping the cloth-wrapped bundle on the bed and crossing to the window. I'm sorry it looks out on the graveyard, Rose said, after clearing her throat. "'My my son's room does, too. "'I do hope you don't mind.' "'Mind?
0: "'Why should I mind?
1: "'Oh,' he said chuckling, "'do you mean worry about the spirits of the departed, "'that sort of thing? "'But, my dear young lady, "'that little graveyard is old. "'Why, I dare say, "'no one has been buried in it for a hundred years. "'Nothing spooky is going to come out of there. "'Dear <laughs> me, no. "'A very pleasant prospect. "'Aha!' I believe I hear my wife down below. You mean only recent graves produce ghosts? Rose asked, trying for a light note. as She followed him downstairs again. Spirits, my dear, spirits. Um, of course. They wear out in the end. Burn out, if you like, just like a candle flame. Spirits are not immortal any more than bodies. They simply have a more energy and a longer lifespan. Thank you, Laura, he added, receiving a plastic garment bag evidently stuffed with clothes, from his wife, who stood nervously by the open front door. And of course, he added to Rose, nonplussed in the hall, it is when they have just left their bodies that spirits are most agitated, not yet knowing, you see, quite where they stand. (laughs) Ha ha! His chuckle was like ice cubes falling into a glass. He retired up the stairs again with the dress bag, and Mrs. Colgate went back to their car, which was parked on the pavement outside, with the policeman eyeing it thoughtfully. "'I I hope you don't mind our coming a little earlier,' we said. Mrs. Colgate fluttered up the front steps again with a bundle of golf clubs and fishing rods and the tube of a vacuum cleaner. The admiral thought it would be more practical to leave during the daylight. It gets dark so early these days, and then (laughs) it's so hard to find things.' She handed the clubs and rods to her husband, who, still in pursuit of his previous theme, said airily, waving a butterfly net, Yes, yes, spirits, when they have just left their bodies, buzz around in quite a panic. Like uh, wasps, you know, positively distilling energy. He bustled off up the stairs again. He could move amazingly nimbly for one so fat, calling back what sounded like, That's the time to catch them! Rose went away to her own kitchen to be by herself. She supposed she had better make the Colgates a cup of tea. That was the proper way to welcome people. She wished that she had not taken such an instantaneous aversion to Desmond Colgate. Probably it was quite ordinary and pleasant when one got to know him. He couldn't help that unnerving voice and fish-like complexion. During the weekend, the Colgates seemed to settle in very completely in their own way, they had brought no furniture, indeed. They had no need to, for the rooms were fully furnished. But they had an incredible quantity of paraphernalia. Bundles, boxes, rolls, frames, cages, baskets. As they carried these up, Rose could not conceive where they would stow all the stuff in her two moderate-sized rooms. And indeed, when she tapped and entered with the ceremonial cups of tea, the floor was completely covered with objects, dumped higgledy-piggledy, and the owners were making no attempt to organise the chaos. They were seated, he on the chaise longue, and she on the divan, each with an half-empty glass in hand. A Johnny Walker bottle stood on a box midway between them. You see us exhausted, my dear Rose, chirped Mr. Colgate. I I may call you Rose, may I not? Such a charming name, recruiting our strength before embarking on the next stage of our labours. Ah, tea. What a considerate thought. How delicious! But Rose noticed when she carried the cups down again that he had hardly touched his, taken no more than a courtesy sip. Was the silence interrupted by her entry a sullen silence, an acrimonious silence, an conspiratorial silence? There had been a positive quality to it. Of that, Rose felt certain. And on the Sunday... As she went about her weekend tasks and tended the children, she could not avoid the irrational notion that the Colgates, mousy quiet themselves, and they seemed to be late risers, were, as she swept or clinked pots in the kitchen, or merely ran up and down stairs, sitting motionless, as she at first discovered them, listening to her. On Sunday evening, Dr. Cobb dropped in unannounced. Passing by, I thought I might as well. Temperature's down yet? Never mind, it has to take its course. Keep him in bed, though. No getting up to watch telly. That measle bug's a bad one. Young Pete Finn, the vet's son, know what I mean? Round-faced boy, she nodded. Took pneumonia. Died this morning. Couldn't get the temperature down. Pete? Pete Finn? She was transfixed by a pang of pity and terror. Uh-oh. But he's such a big strong boy. We we know him well. He's it he was a friend of Bob's. Cobb shook his head. Didn't make it. Don't tell you this to scare you, just to warn. Well, keep on with the pills all you can do. He made for the door fast, turned to say with a touch of inquisitiveness and something else, malice, and his good nature. Here you've got new lodgers. He jerked his thumb upwards. They didn't stay in his father's house too long. You know the Admiral, then? He nodded. He knew everybody. Patient. Haven't met the younger generation. They've been in foreign parts, haven't they? Good thing they left the old boy, rubbing him up the wrong way. He said they were hastening his end. Behaving themselves here, are they? They seem fine. Why? She was instantly alarmed. Oh, nothing, nothing. Glad you found somebody. Only I did hear, he gestured, tipping up an invisible glass. Oh, thought Rose, that would explain the shaking hands and trouble about driving. Both, she mouthed unhappily. He shrugged. Only in moderation, I dare say. Could be worse. Could be heroin. Take care now. Call me at the least worry. With a carefree slam, he was into his car and away. On Monday, a prey to hideous qualms and misgivings, Rose drove to the office of woman's scene. She had left prepared food of every kind ready to be fed to her children. A paper tacked to the wall with her phone number, the doctor's number, the plumber, electrician, hospital, typed instructions, stuck on all the household appliances. For Mrs Colgate had asked if she might use the washing machine, the iron sewing machine vacuum. My father-in-law was always terribly difficult about letting us use his things, she confided. Press week on the magazine was always a scramble of last-minute work. Rose found it impossible to leave the office before 6.30. She arrived home late and in trepidation, though Mrs. Colgate that morning had been wholly friendly and reassuring. Mr. Colgate had not been visible. Don't you worry about a thing, my dear. It will really be a pleasure to look after your nice children, dear little things. She had seemed decidedly calmer than on the day they arrived. Her hands shook less. When Rose opened the door, the house was totally silent, and downstairs all in darkness. She flipped a switch, no light. In a panic, she ran up the stairs. Here, there was darkness too though dim lights came from the children's rooms. When she went in to see Titch, Rose discovered the source of this subdued light. Mr Colgate was there reading Kim aloud to her daughter by the flicker of two candles. His high, monotonous, bird-like voice, which had seemed, as she entered, mysteriously to come from somewhere in the ceiling, ceased when he saw Rose. Despite the dim light, he was still wearing his eye shade. "'Ah, there you are, at last, my dear,' he said graciously to Rose. "'Then I will retire.' uh, "'Has everything been all right?' Rose hoped that the nervousness and dislike in her voice were not as audible to him as they seemed to her. "'Just as right as it could be,' Mr Colgate declared with greater gaiety. He added judiciously, "'But I believe your daughter is not very used to men.' My husband died when she was only three. Ah, I see. That explains it so long ago, he sighed. Might I ask, uh, did your husband live here when he was alive uh, in this house? No, we moved here after his death. Ah, too bad, he seemed disappointed. I was asking the children about him. He took a step and a strong, sweetish scent of whiskey and hair oil was released. Rose longed for him to be gone. She could see what seemed to have escaped Mr. Colgate's notice under the eye-shade and the dim light, that Titch was in a silent agony of terrified tears that might at any minute reach screaming pitch. Well, good night, Mr. Colgate. Thank you so much. And, as he mercifully left the room, and she heard his own door shut behind him, My lamb, what's the matter? Titch flung herself quivering into her mother's arms, He's horrible. I couldn't understand a single word. He said not a word. His voice is so strange. It seemed to come from the roof. And he smells awful. Please, don't let him come in here any more. No, of course I won't. With sinking heart, Rose wondered how this was to be achieved without mortally offending Mr. Colgate. She suspected that he might be a very touchy man. As soon as she could detach herself from the panic-stricken titch, Rose went to visit Bob. Here the scene seemed calmer. Bob was sitting up in a bed, flushed but impassive, wrapped in a quilt, playing cards on a pastry board with Mrs. Colgate. Two more flickering candles lit the room. "'Your son has a natural aptitude for cards,' Mrs. Colgate said, smiling, ducking out from under the sloping roof. "'I've taught him spider,' and before he learned Napoleon, streets and alleys, Klondike and the beleaguered castle. He learns like lightning. Bless him, Rose stroked the tousled fair head. It's so kind of you. With relief, she saw that Bob, though not in the best of spirits, had not been reduced to Titch's state of despair. She felt his forehead. It was very hot. It twitched away nervously from her street-cold hand. Why all the candles? Rose asked. Did the main fuse blow? I can't say, Mrs. Colgate looked vague. Uh, Something went wrong. Uh, But anyway, my husband and I really prefer candlelight. Rose did not. In a Tudor house largely constructed of timber and lath, candles were too great a fire hazard, and she groped her way down to the cellar and mended the three separate fuses that seemed to have blown. However, even when the rest of the rooms were blazing with light, she noticed, when outside, fetching her briefcase from the car, that only a dim flicker still emanated from the Colgate's windows. I hope to God they've tidied up all that clutter, she thought apprehensively. She could hardly forbid the Colgates to use candles if such was their preference, but it did seem risky with all those obstacles on the floor to trip them. Perhaps they were straight by now, though. Later on in the evening, she was obliged to visit their room. The phone rang. It was a male voice asking for Mr. Desmond Colgate. What name shall I say? inquired Rose. Hugh Morgan Slay, Admiral Colgate's solicitor. I've been trying this number all day, said the voice irritably. I'll see if they're in, but I'd rather believe I heard them go out half an hour ago, said Rose. As she gulped down her hasty, late supper, she had heard footsteps and mutterings on the stairs. Pondering, she tapped on the Colgate's door. Twice during the day, she had tried to phone home in order to ask after the children, but had got no reply on either occasion were the Colgates telephone-shy. The tapping produced no response, and she cautiously opened the door, automatically switching on the light. Something scurried hastily in a corner. She caught a glimpse of a smallish, whitish creature, which vanished under a corner of blanket hanging from the divan. The Colgates were nowhere to be seen and the rooms were still just as untidy as they had been four days ago. A guttering candle leaned precariously over the edge of a saucer. Rose extinguished it. and went back to the phone. "Uh, They must be out, I'm afraid. Shall I leave them a message to call you? That won't be any use, he said sourly. I suppose I shall have to come and see them to explain the Admiral's intentions. He sounded as if he found the prospect intensely disagreeable. You might catch them at Friends, if you have any idea where to phone, Rose suggested. More likely in a pub, he muttered to himself, not Rose, and rang off. She had intended to wait up in order to tell them about the call, and also ask about the creature. What could it have been? A ferret? A lizard? A coypu? But they returned home so extremely late, that by the time they came in, she had given up and exhausted retired to bed she slept lightly though and heard their shuffling feet on the stairs after the church clock struck one not a pub then mr morgan's sleigh must have been wrong about that in the morning there was no sound from the colgate area not daring to leave the children both running fevers without being certain that somebody was alert enough to tend to their needs rose waited as long as possible and tapped at the door. A very long silence ensued. Rose tapped again. A drowsy voice called, Who is it? It's me, Rose. I'm sorry to disturb you. After another long pause, Mrs. Colgate came flapping to the door in a faded silk wrapper that must have once been memorably ornate. Her face was chalk pale. Her hands shook wildly. Rose passed on the lawyer's message, which Mrs. Colgate received without expression, and then added, I'm sorry to bother you. Why did she keep saying that? It wasn't true. But I just phoned the doctor, and he says if the children's temperatures aren't down by noon, get in touch with him and he'll come round. Just phone him and he'll come, she repeated, as Mrs. Colgate continued to look unreceptive. Phone the doctor? Oh, I won't do that. I'll run round to the surgery, Mrs. Colgate said after a pause. "'I've seen it. It's in the square, isn't it?' "'Yes,' said Rose, rather astonished. "'But you'd much better phone. He won't be there. "'He'll be on his rounds. They'll have to find him.' "'I'll go,' repeated Mrs Colgate. "'I like fresh air.' "'You won't forget, will you?' There was something so odd about the woman that Rose was deeply troubled at having to leave the children in her charge. She went on. I I don't like to seem a silly, fussing parent, but since the news about poor little Peter Finn's death... Peter Finn's death? Mrs. Colgate looked a little more intelligent. The vet's boy at South Dean. Such a sweet boy. He used to wash our car, and my husband taught him to play cribbage. Mention of the vet reminded Rose of something. By the way, do you have a pet? When I looked in here last night, I, I thought I saw... The thing is... I hadn't really reckoned. The house isn't very big. For several moments, Mrs. Colgate remained quite silent, her face noncommittal. Then, as if after reflection, she said, A pet? I thought when I went up about the phone call, I saw something like a a ferret. Oh, you mean my sister's Chinese rabbit, Mrs. Colgate said, as if suddenly enlightened. Don't worry, I'll take it back to her today. And she added, We don't like pets at all, don't worry. She finished absently. Rose nodded, left the house and ran to her car. She was very late and it was beginning to snow. On both the following evenings, the lights were all fused when Rose arrived home. Some activity of the Colgate's apparently put an excessive strain on the wiring. Mending the fuses, Rose resolved to ask them about it when she had a little more time. But there were so many things on her mind as well. The children still soaring temperatures, the unsorted mess in the Colgate's rooms, visible whenever they briefly left the door open, ought Rose to help them tidy it. The intermittent snow, which made driving a terror to Rose, never confident in the car at the best of times. The hectic going-to-press non-stop action of the magazine. Then, on Wednesday evening, there came a call from the police. Mrs. Burdock, Sergeant Grimbled here. I believe you have a Mr. Colgate staying with you who owns a white Cortina, registration ddr one j Would you mind telling him he's parked it illegally in Mary Lane, and unless it's removed within half an hour, it will be towed away at his expense? Oh, oh, yes, I'll tell him. Very kind of you to tip him off, Rose said to Sergeant Grimbald, who was an old friend, and he said, Confidentially, they keep leaving their car in all sorts of crazy places. You'd better warn them or they're in for trouble. Oh, good heavens, said Mr. Colgate irritably when Rose relayed this message to him, somewhat watered down. I must say it is a great pity we are not permitted to put our car in the graveyard next door. There would be plenty of room among the trees. This town is so awkward and confusing at night as the streets are so poorly lit. Ironic that he, with his preference for candlelight, should complain of that, Rose thought. He went on. Quite often in the morning, other people have parked so inconsiderately that it is almost impossible for us to locate our car. My poor wife had to spend several hours today searching for it. This explained Bob's complaint. We didn't get our lunch today till four, months need these Colgate stay. I don't really like them. Oh dear love, nor do I much. But they are keeping an eye on you and they pay the month's rent in advance. What don't you like about them? Everything. And his puppets are the absolute end. Puppets. He makes them out of China or something. They clink. He showed me a couple this afternoon when we were playing cards. One moved by itself. Horrible. We played canasta, and he said if I won, I could have one of the smaller puppets. But I wouldn't want one. They give me the creeps. Anyway, I didn't win. On Thursday morning, early, Mrs. Joubert sent for Rose. The magazine had been safely put to bed. There was time to draw breath. Rose hurried to the editor's office, wondering what fault or omission of hers had come under scrutiny. She could think of several possibilities in the last few desperate days but this summons was of a personal nature. Mrs. Joubert came to the point directly. I've just been talking to my housekeeper at South Dean. She tells me she heard the young Colgates had rented rooms in your house. Young Colgates? Rose would hardly have classified them as that, but she supposed that compared with the Admiral in his late eighties, they rated as young. Yes, that's right. Well, get them out at once. You can't let them stay in your house. But, but, Rose stammered, utterly taken aback. They gave you as a reference. That, that was why I let them come. Like their impudence, they'd no right to, Mrs. Joubert said incisively. My dear, they nearly drove that wretched old man mad. He said they were hurrying him towards his end. They are an appalling couple. What's the matter with them? Well, they drink like fishes for a start. But there are much worse things. They have all kinds of murky habits. You have got to get rid of them. But but they paid a month's rent. Pay it back, get them out. How can I possibly do that? Invent something. Say you've got your mother in law coming to live with you. I'm serious. But they're looking after my children who have mumps and measles. Rose felt herself close to fainting with sheer despair. You'll just have to take some time off, Mrs. Joubert said impatiently. Luckily, we've just gone to press. In a small, detached, ironic corner of her mind, Rose wondered if the time off would have been granted otherwise. Don't come in till next Monday. Tell them some story. Fix something, okay? And you'd better leave early today. Nonetheless, there was much clearing up to do after the scrambled press day. The January afternoon was darkening by the time Rose parked the mini opposite her front door. The sight of Dr. Cobb's car arrogantly straddling the double lines across the road turned her cold with apprehension. I'm afraid a lad's coming down with measles too, the doctor told her outside Bob's door. This is really going to be a tricky time. I've left a lot of new medicine for him to take. Uh, try an ice pack and lots of fluids. I'll be back later this evening. You, you don't think he should go into hospital? Rose tried to keep her voice level. My dear, that pack to the gills. Still, don't worry. You later. Don't worry, Rose thought, pressing both hands against her aching temples. Ten minutes afterwards, as she ran up the stairs with a jug of barley water, she found her way impeded by Mr. Colgate, fatly occupying most of the narrow landing. I'm taking these in to amuse him, he chirped gaily. She was too exhausted to pretend. No, he doesn't want anything like that, Mr. Colgate. He's far too sick. Yet, There was something rather repulsively fascinating about Mr. Colgate's puppets, which he held dangling from either hand. China, Bobbitt said, and she had thought he must be mistaken. But in fact, the puppets were made of ceramic, a series of bell-shaped pottery pieces, a large one for the body with painted face, and smaller ones for the arms and legs, each slotting into the one above, threaded on leather thongs, They clinked slightly as they moved. The faces, though depicted by no more than half a dozen strokes of black and white paint, wore such expressions of malign hostility that it was easy to see why they had upset Bob. Thank heaven Titch had not seen them. He's too sick, Rose repeated firmly. Poor boy, Mr Colgate sighed. It's hard when one is young to be so very ill. You're sure I couldn't show him just one puppet? I have a big one, bigger than these, which moves all by itself. I've trained it to do that.
0: He liked that one.
1: No thanks, Mr Colgate. Mrs Colgate opened the door and put her face round. She looked fatigued and frightened. For a moment, Rose thought she could hear a faint high-pitched crying coming from the room behind her. Then she stepped out and closed the door. Ventriloquism, said her husband. Did you know I could throw my voice, my dear Rose? He twitched his face, and a squeaky voice came from among the rafters up above them. Let me out, let me out. Don't do that, Desmond, said his wife hastily. Tell me, where did you put the collecting bottle? I need it for... I'm trying to divert our dear Rose, Laura. Well, she isn't amused. Where did you leave the bottle? I dare say it's in the car, he replied pettishly. Where's the car? God knows if you don't, he snapped and went into their room, slamming the door. For the instant that it was open, Rose thought she heard the crying again. Then there was a thump and silence. Am I going mad? she wondered, carrying the barley water into Bob. He was slightly delirious and pushed her away, crying, Don't you let them near me or I'll smash them! Titch, too, was worse that evening, and complained of pains all round her neck. But she would still take fruit juice, which Bob refused. Rose, squeezing oranges in her kitchen, was interrupted by Mr. Colgate, who seemed aggrieved. "'I'm very fond of your children,' he announced aggressively. "'That's kind of you, Mr. Colgate. I'm sure you are. "'Then why does your daughter scream like a maniac when I go into her room? "'She's very sick. She's only eight. She's not used to men.' She's used to the doctor. That's different. She's known him for years. I would like to teach her to play clock patience. Any child her age can learn that. Mr. Colgate, I would rather you didn't go into her room just at present. He looked at Rose loweringly, but at this moment his wife came in, flustered, brushing snowflakes off her shabby headscarf. Desmond, I can't find the car. Can't you remember where we left it last? You were driving? No, I wasn't, she began, but he dragged her sharply out into the passage. Rose heard them squabbling. You must remember. Well, I don't. You were driving. Shut up. Try to think where you put it. I didn't put it anywhere. I've looked all over the town. If we don't find that bottle soon, it'll be... They're getting fractious. I don't hear anything. That's because you're deaf, Desmond. He was a bit deaf, Rose had noticed. Often she had to repeat things she said to him. Did you try in the alley next to the library where it says librarian only? No, I didn't. I think it might be there. Go and see. You go and quiet them down then. Put them in the birdcage. When the Colgates had departed, Rose took Titch her orange juice. She thought she could hear a kind of scuffle taking place in the Colgate's room mixed with subdued curses. Just as she was carrying the empty beaker downstairs again, Mrs. Colgate came in through the front door. Evidently, her quest this time had been successful. She bore a heavy-looking gallon-sized flagon made of black glass. It was encased in a sort of basketwork, which was covered all over with beads, black, green, blue, red and white. The beading formed letters, which ran criss-cross up, down and sideways, like a crossword puzzle. In her brief glimpse, Rose saw no words she recognised, but noticed the letters... O-A-T-N-E-S It was an extremely foreign-looking article. Perhaps the Colgates had brought it back with them from Tehran. What could they keep in it that was required with such urgency? Although the black glass looked massively thick, the frail Mrs Colgate appeared to be able to carry it without too much difficulty, as if the contents were light. It could be oxygen, thought Rose or crushed laurel leaves for killing moths. Why did they call it a collecting bottle? She went upstairs again to read aloud to Titch, who complained that she ached all over. The crying from the Colgate's room had ceased. Rose decided that she had imagined it. Dr. Cobb came back at eleven and said that Bob was holding his own. You get a bit of sleep now and have a look at him around too. Call me if you're at all bothered, he said. Try to sleep a little now. Okay, you're very good, Rose muttered. The coal gates, according to evening custom, had gone out. Rose suppressed an urge to bolt the front door so that they could not get back in. She could not resist the temptation to peep into their room. The floor was still covered with things. The plastic garment bag hung from a rafter, swaying slightly. Near the door stood the large birdcage covered by a square of red baize. Gingerly, Rose twitched the baize up and let it drop again with a shudder of disgust. On the floor of the cage were three smallish, whitish, wrinkled things huddled together, motionless. What could they have been? They resembled embryos with horrible little tapering, attenuated limbs. They reminded her vaguely of William Blake's paintings. They couldn't have been alive. They couldn't have been real, she told herself. It was just a pile of chamois leather or something like that. Bits of crumpled plastic, perhaps. Tomorrow, she would give the Colgates notice to go, the first thing in the morning, as soon as she saw them. Trembling, she shut the door again, went to her own room set the alarm for 2 a.m. and fell on the bed fully clothed. She had thought she would never go to sleep, but she went off instantly as if she had swallowed a knockout dose and immediately began to dream. She dreamed that she was watching Desmond Colgate and her son play cards. The cards were laid out like gravestones all over a flat board and the room was lit by two candles, one black, on white. Mr Colgate pointed to the candles and said, You remember what the Egyptians believed. We are split into ten parts, of which this is the ka, or double, and that the ku, or spirit. Are you paying attention, boy? Yes, Bob said sleepily. He was lolling back on the pillow, hardly able to keep his eyes open. Very well. We shall play devil's a bedpost,
0: Colgate said,
1: and he began moving the cards into a square formation. The winner takes both candles, right? Don't play with him, Bob, Rose wanted to scream, but her voice remained trapped inside. Her lips would not open. The players began moving the cards about, murmuring incomprehensible terms. I buy the devil. I cross the equator. Cold hand takes the tiger. Go now. Queen of the night takes ten. Suddenly, Colgate slapped all his cards down on the board shouting, Dead hand. I win. And picking up a black conical candle extinguisher, he snuffed out both flames and put the candles in his pocket. Rose thought she had woken herself by shrieking, but found that it was the shrilling of the alarm in her ear that had aroused her. She stumbled out of bed and quietly opened her bedroom door. On the landing she was dismayed to see Desmond Colgate also fully clothed. He seemed to be coming from Bob's room, and was carrying a flashlight which cast a small round pool of light before him on the floor. He did not observe Rose. He opened his own door and exclaimed in a harsh whisper, "Laura, Nora, Nora! The little brute got away! Where did you leave the bottle?' A sleepy voice answered, "'It's back in the car. Where's the bloody car?' "'Don't you remember? You left it in the graveyard.' He spun round and Rose heard the thump of his feet down the stairs and the soft slam of the front door. Aghast, she stepped to the landing window, which also looked out onto the graveyard, thrust back the curtain and saw, in bright moonlight against the snow, the Colgate's car drawn up askew just inside the gate. She was in time to see Colgate. He held the wicker-wrapped flask in one hand, what looked like a white towel in the other. He was dashing about among the gravestones, apparently in pursuit of some elusive and darting quarry. He made frantic flaps and lunges with the cloth, blundered into the stone slabs, tripped, picked himself up again, and stumbled on. But presently, dropping the bottle, he pressed both hands violently against his breastbone, as if coughing or choking, stood in this position anchored for several moments, then fell heavily onto the snow, and lay still. Rose heard the shallow breathing behind her and turned to see Laura Colgate looking past her shoulder. What is it? What is it? she muttered apprehensively, pushing aside her dangling hair with tremulous hands. Your husband's out in the graveyard, Mrs. Colgate, said Rose bleakly. I think you had better go to him. He seems to have been taken ill. Whimpering in distress, the other woman shuffled down the stairs. Desmond, Desmond, why wouldn't you wait for me? She called plaintively, and the door slammed behind her. Rose waited a moment, saw her approach her husband's body, stoop and recoil with upflung hands, glancing suspiciously round her as if expecting crowds of onlookers. Rose turned and ran to her son's room. His window stood wide open. A scatter of cards lay over the quilt. Bob was sprawled in the bed, motionless, with his face to the wall. Rose, trying to keep her fingers steady on his wrist, could find no pulse. She ran down the stairs to the telephone. Mum, I'm thirsty, came in a feeble croak from Titch's room. Just a minute, love, Uh, shan't be long. Rose began dialing the doctor's number. As she did so, she heard the front door closed, and Mrs Colgate's dragging steps cross the front hall.
0: Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Somebody come back, don't they? So that was The Lodges by Joan Aiken. Joan Delano Aiken, good name. And she was the daughter of Conrad Aiken, who was an American poet. And we read one of his stories out, Mr. Acularis, um, which is, um, you'll have to go and listen to it, so I won't give you any spoilers. But it's a dreamlike kind of story. Well, Conrad spent a lot of time in England, and his daughter, Joan, was born in 1924 in Mermaid Street, in Rye in East Sussex now Rye if you don't know it is a very picturesque sort of piratey town on the south coast of England with cobbled streets and I think there's the Mermaid Inn there's the Lamin as well one of her books was called The Haunting of Lamin of the Lamin uh so very picturesque place uh, Conrad Aiken um so Joan Aiken's brother is John and her sister elder sister was Jane so you have Jane, Joan and John so this is actually pararime. So you, so maybe that was Conrad, Conrad Aiken, having a bit of a, bit of a laugh. Anyway, um, it reminds me. I worked in a team once, uh, and the, uh, I was on shift one day, and it struck me, having a poet's ear, you see, that uh, there was Jane, June, Jen, and Joan. So. I amused myself, but I don't think anybody else by saying, Cup of tea, Jane. Cup of tea, Jean? Cup of tea Jen? Cup of tea, Jane, cup of tea, June. You know, and uh see they didn't know that was parorhyme, but it was, anyway, a digression. So she died at the age of seventy nine in Petworth, in West Sussex. So he hadn't travelled very far. Um she went went to a private school she was educated at home initially and then went to a private school in oxford but she didn't go to university and she spent her time writing stories for children yeah children's story And this the lodges is supposed to be a children's story although mm, anyway so um her most famous she wrote a series of books called the wolves chronicles and the most famous of her books are um the wolves of willoughby chase which has been made into a film a couple of times maybe, maybe just once, Uh, one of my favourite films actually, and Black Hearts in Battersea but she wrote uh, something like 80 novels and this story, The Lodgers, comes from her collection um, A Touch of Chill. Um, Now, there aren't many reviews of this anthology which you can actually see if you go to archive.org and you join there, you can borrow it free of charge for 14 days I think. this leaded me on to a story of a mini disaster. Uh, but, um, so I'll say that first and then we'll talk about the story. So I decided, I've decided I'm going to try and film the stories, so, uh, me reading the stories, because I'm on YouTube. And I would then use the soundtrack and put on the podcast, which is obviously audio only. Um, so I filmed it and I actually had two cameras. And one didn't work. The other... He did work but it had the side of my head and my head down and what i was finding was i was reading the book and my head was down i had my glasses on because i can't read it without the glasses and uh all you could see was the top of my head it was like the worst video in the world so and i also noticed that i spilled some milk on my shirt on my blue shirt so it was a terrible mess so i got rid of the video so uh i have to have a rethink about reading from books i might need a lectern or you know, pulpit type thing. But it didn't work, so I I destroyed the evidence. But I thought I would, I do want to do it, so I tried to do this. Now, this explains the poor audio, because I have my microphone here, and, um, but because I was looking towards the camera, my microphone was away from my mouth, so the audio isn't great either. I've salvaged it as best I can, but I'm aware that it's not perfect. So that's it. this, what's the story about? Well, I, I think there's a whole bunch of sort of 1940s, 50s stories, like Robert Aikman, that have this suburban, small town, England, really, and and the the real weirdness of it. This was a thing that happened. People had lodgers. My grandparents had lodgers, and these were adult people who roomed with them, you know. Um, I think my grandparents had specialised in... Germans, I think, but you know that was probably unusual. I don't know what the Germans were doing there, they're doing here But anyway, so um, they're very welcome as far as I'm concerned, but I just don't understand what they were doing here um Yeah, so It's odd, isn't it that these people should just turn up? I think it is meant to be odd and has that suburban weirdness. So what are they doing? They seem to drink a lot. They're slovenly. They don't get up. There's a terrible mess he makes China China puppets, which is weird, because um, I've got to th- well, it's not just my theory. You know, we look for faces of people, and uh, when we see a face that isn't human, it weirds us out a bit. So dolls, people don't like them, puppets, Punch and Judy, masks. I've got a ghost story about a mask, but I'm not going to do it today. I'll, I'll tell it some other time. Um, that was my own experience. Anyway, there's something about this face, like the blank faces, like the Venetian masks and things like that. That weirds people out and, you know, those, all those horror movies about Chucky and China dolls and things like that, you know. So, um, that's what we've got. And it also reminded me of, uh, you. you may not get this reference, but in the 1960s, when I was a very small boy, there was um, a TV series called Bill and Ben, the flowerpot men. And and the, the heroes were Bill and Ben, who were made of flowerpots. So this, and they walked around on string. They were puppets, you know, in the, in the TV series, rather than people being dressed up. So uh, it kind of reminded me of that. One of the lights has just gone out. It reminded me of that. Um... Yeah, so odd. He's got a collecting jar. The people used to collect butterflies. But this this is a weird, there's something black magic about it, it seems to me. And he seems to collect the souls of children. And there's some occult stuff going on with the Egyptians and the black and the white pillars. Now, if you've ever known anything about ritual magic in the Golden Dawn, um, they had this kind of thing. So there's something of that magic in it. Uh, ritual magic in it collecting souls he quite likes going around the graveyard although the souls there are old and they don't they're not juicy or and he wants children's souls and i think those things in the cage are the kind of deflated souls of children so does he kill the boy well the boy has a fever and we're warned from the very outset that it might go he might get mumps and then measles and it might pull him down a lot of people used to die of measles and uh, the, um, is it, Peter Finn, the the, the vets boy dies. So we're forewarned that this is a possibility. So it's possible that the death is, on one level, completely natural and expected, but he plays this weird card game, and if they lose, he seems to collect their souls. But as to then, why he runs out in the graveyard. The only thing I can think is that, um, like a butterfly, um, the Bob, isn't it, the Bob's soul flies out the window into the graveyard and the the bloke, um, what's his name, Colgate, Desmond Colgate, runs out after him and suffers some kind of stroke or something. So it's a bit of a mysterious story and It has for me that weird, unnerving kind of quality which takes the everyday and shifts it into weirdness. It reminds me, you know, you'll hear me talk about David Lynch and Twin Peaks, particularly Twin Peaks in this case, where we have the suburban, in that case, you know, Washington State, small town, everyday and then weirdness just comes and i think this is what John aiken's doing and actually um i was i was listening i have just been listening to a podcast episode about david lynch and his, his issue is that he doesn't explain his films you we try and find narrative in this but remember in the 20th century late 19th century we had dadaism and cubism and and surrealism and it was definitely and freud it was definitely an approach to uh the irrational which cannot be rationally analyzed so we tend to look for a beginning middle and an end because that's how stories normally work but i think in some cases some people were writing stories at this period maybe still do um whereby um you 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 appreciate it like a piece of work about like you know what's his name Uh, Hopper's paintings of these cafes in America quite melancholy people sitting on their own in cafes or looking out of train windows or or bedroom windows and so a painting is appreciated not as a narrative story that you can make sense of and a piece of music is like that uh, or a piece of dance is like that you know you you don't there is no narrative structure so and clearly there is in this story clearly there is but the end is very fluid unless i've missed it unless i've totally missed it but but there is maybe some of the weirdness is not supposed to be analyzed and taken apart for its meaning it is meant just to be appreciated like if you were listening to a moody piece of music it would create an atmosphere again david lynch's stuff in in cinema painting it would create an atmosphere but you wouldn't necessarily be able to take it apart and find a story structure and yeah I think it this is maybe a hybrid story but I may be completely on the wrong track so that's about it uh, things are going I'm back from Edinburgh clearly I mean my mother's I moved to my mother's house the house move is going you know it's a nightmare. Actually, that is a real horror story, but um, which I won't bore you with. But uh, so Sheila, my partner, is living somewhere else. I'm living here. My mother's quite pleased to have me, I think. And so Sheila's like, oh, you know, sofa. I hope she does not watch this. Sofa surfing, and this is terrible. And it is. I, I don't like being away. I do miss her, uh, but um, I, no, I really miss her. But um, my mother's cooking for me. She's doing my washing the bed's comfortable. I'm like, yeah, I'm not having it as bad as she is, so I feel a bit bad about that. Um, Yeah, so in terms of uh, my call to action, a call to action, um, yeah, become a member of the YouTube channel, if you're watching on YouTube, become a patron, Um, you get exclusive stories. I'm going to be putting more exclusive stories up on YouTube soon, um, you can join through Substack. There's lots of ways you can support. And if you just want to show you as a bot, as a one-off, because I know it's hard to make contribution all the time, you can just buy me a coffee. There's links to all of that. And, you know, it's just great to have you here. Honestly, honestly. I appreciate the extra support that some people are able to give me, but I really do this to tell you stories. And that's it. Okay. Anyway, that's it. Um, I, hope this film, I hope this camera's worked, because if it hasn't, I'm not doing it again. All right. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, come back. Isn't back, back. that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?